This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. See if you can remember the first time you heard this. Left you by the house of fun I don't know why I didn't come I don't know why I didn't come So this is the song Don't Know Why. It was written by Jesse Harris and sung here by Nora Jones. I definitely remember when I first heard it. I'm Robin Hilton from NPR Music and All Songs Considered. I'm here with WBGO and Jazz Night in America's Nate Chenin. Hey, Nate. Hey, Robin. And NPR Music's Ann Powers... Hello, my smooth friends. <laughs> I'm just swooning here listening to this. Uh, how about you two? Do you do you remember the first time you heard this, Nate? I do. I got a an advance CD in the mail from Blue Note Records. This would have been two or three months before the album came out. And I had seen Nora perform on somebody else's show in New York with the great guitarist Charlie Hunter, just as a hop-on guest. So I, I knew who she was. But as soon as I put this album on, I was like, this sounds really different. I would die in ecstasy, but I'll be back bones, driving down the road alone. Well, this was definitely instant FOMO for me because I did not see Nora Jones before the record came out. And I was living in New York and I had heard about her legendary sets at the listening room. So I just felt regret when I heard this song for the first time. Like, damn, I wasn't on it right away. I remember back then I was going through this giant mail bin of CDs one day, just listening to whatever came in and hoping to find something new. And I came across her CD. I popped it in and I hit play. And, you know, the piano's there and it's really nice. But then her voice comes in and literally this little tingle went up my spine and I I got goosebumps for real. And uh, so I gave it to Bob Boylan, the CD to Bob Boylan. I can't remember if he'd already heard it, but he disappears for a while. And then he comes back and he says... She's Ravi Shankar's daughter. (laughs) And our minds were blown. Uh, So Come Away With Me, which was the debut album from who was then an unknown artist, Nora Jones. The album went on to be a massive, massive hit for her and for the Blue Note label. It eventually became the number one record in the U.S. It sold millions of copies at a time when CD sales were in decline. It won a boatload of Grammys. And what a lot of fans might not know is that Come Away With Me, the record we heard, was not the album that Nora Jones initially set out to make. The original album she recorded for Blue Note and submitted to them, the label rejected that. They turned it down and they sent her back to the studio. But now, 20 years later, 
For the album's anniversary, Blue Note has released a deluxe version of Come Away With Me. It has a remastered copy of the the album that came out that we all know, plus the original demo album Nora recorded with her bandmates and a third disc of other alternate takes and recordings. So what we're going to do on this episode of All Songs Considered is we're going to hear some of the music, we're going to play some of the demos, and we're going to hear from Nora Jones herself. And we're going to talk about the legacy of this record. You know, it's become a historic touchstone for so many things in the music industry. But what I thought we'd do is let's just kind of go back and tell the story of how this record came to be, along with Nora's help here. Let's go back to 2000, the year 2000. Nora Jones is 21 years old. She just moved to New York, where she hopes she can make it big. So she had quite a bit of jazz training and was training as a pianist and then kind of fell into singing. And so one interesting thing about her arrival in New York is that she falls into and cobbles together a scene very much like out of the spotlight. You couldn't get any closer to ground level than she was at as a budding artist. You know, she's getting together with young, aspiring singer-songwriters like Jesse Harris. They're playing at this room on the Lower East Side called The Living Room, which is very cozy, very aptly named. But she's also playing jazz gigs, singing standards and playing piano and doing whatever she can to just get better and circulate and figure it out. And in fact, she was even playing jazz brunches. (laughs) Yeah. The classic jazz brunch in New York. And a woman named Shell White, who worked in accounts at Blue Note, went to the brunch, you know, just to have some eggs Benedict or whatever. And there's uh, there's Nora and Bruce Lundvall, of course, the person who eventually signs her at Blue Note, gets a message from Shell White. I want to talk to you about something. And I guess he thought, oh, no, it's someone from accounts. They're going to get on me about some unpaid royalties <laughs> or something. But no, she's like, look, I found this person. And then from there, that's where the connection happened. It was enough to get Nora a meeting. And so she showed up with, I think, a three-song demo. And those songs are included in this new package. And I spoke with her recently. And knowing the late Bruce Lundvall, I was really curious to hear what she'd have to say about being this young sort of new arrival and meeting this legendary figure. When Shell White brought me in to meet with him, I brought in my three song demos, two of which were jazz standards. And one was a song I had recorded for Jesse, one of his songs. And Bruce was, you know, he had white hair and a white beard, full suit. In my mind, he always had on a three-piece suit. Maybe it wasn't a three-piece suit. Maybe it was just a regular suit, but... He was always dressed to the nines. And the Blue Note office was beautiful. There was like a piano in the lobby and they had this high arched ceiling. It was beautiful. But I was like sweaty. I remember being really sweaty, <laughs> I think, because I'm just sweaty, I'm, especially in New York when you're taking the subway and like, you know, hustling around town. It's just, I, you always get hot. But he was just really nice, and he listened to the first two songs. He, I, he was really impressed that I sang Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most. He seemed sh- kind of surprised by that. Once I was a sentimental thing Threw my heart away each spring But now a spring romance Hasn't got a chance 
promised my first dance to winter. What interests me about this demo is you can really hear her already forming her own style. There's that conversational quality. There's just like that bit of a Texas burr. Mm. Maybe we would call it bluesy. It's all there even in this first time we hear her. Yeah. Nora was an unusual kid. She used to tape record episodes of Marion McPartland's Piano Jazz off NPR. Mm. <laughs> um, and she literally kept the collection of these cassettes, you know, because wow. she just, she loved that show. She loved Marion. She loved the conversational quality and she learned a lot from it and eventually became very good friends with Marion McPartland. But you listen to this recording. I hear Marion McPartland in this recording, you know? That's interesting. In the piano playing? Mm-hmm. In what way? It's the kind of song that Marion loved to play. It's the kind of song that people often brought to that show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's got this very kind of unhurried tempo, and it's not trying to make a big statement or hammer you over the head with anything. It's just comfortable and at home in itself. Spring can really hang you up the most All winter long Those birds, they twitter, twit I know the song This is love, this is it that was kind of the, the vibe that Marion created. And I think Nora clearly has always gravitated toward that in some way. I think we should hear a little bit more from Nora herself about that meeting she had with Bruce Lundvall and how she thought Bruce Lundvall felt about her music and the demos she played. I think he was impressed by it. And the second song, you know, it was like an old standard. I think he liked that I played piano. And then I sang Jesse's song, World of Trouble, was I just threw that on there for some variety because Jesse had asked me to sing some of his songs for some demos. And he was like, well, this is not really a jazz song. What do you want to be, a jazz singer or a pop singer? And I was like, oh, jazz singer. Uh, I didn't know what to say. You know, I'd been saying jazz singer for so long at that point. I didn't pop singer obviously also that song was not a pop song maybe in the 70s it would have been a pop song but it didn't really strike me as a pop song it starts off slow with a kiss of folly and you don't see it as more but after World of Trouble, the song she mentioned, uh, not a pop song. Not a pop well, song. I mean, you have to remember what pop was around this time. This was I the know. era of the Britney breakthrough. This was the era of boy bands. It was not the era of what Jody Rosen called when he wrote about Nora Jones in the New York Times after her breakthrough, quote unquote, adult music. Adult she music. supposedly yeah. brought adult music back. <laughs> but it's really meaningful to think about Bruce Lundvall posing that question. And I think categorically, he's just thinking, is it jazz or is it other than jazz? Right. You know? Jazz, not jazz. That classic question that haunts right. every era of jazz, really. And what I hear in World of Trouble which is also something we hear in the song Lone Star, which eventually appears on the debut album, 
is a connection with Norris Texas roots and particularly with Willie Nelson and with the kind of jazz phrasings of Willie Nelson. Absolutely. And then also, I think very clearly, as a pianist, as a singer, like Ray Charles looms really large, too, for her, even at this young age. And so so we're talking about American music. So it's with this question about whether or not, you know, does she want to be a jazz singer, a pop singer, kind of hanging over her, that Bruce says, look, why don't you go make a demo album for us and we'll take it from there. He gives her $6,000. She goes with her bandmates, Jesse Harris and Lee Alexander, to record this record. And it's her chance to find out who she wants to be as an artist. And we were kind of just doing the thing that we had been doing at the living room, where I sing Jesse's songs, I sing Lee's songs, I sing a couple of my own songs, because I had only a couple songs at that time written myself. And we threw in some covers. And so that's exactly what these demo sessions were. And it was to get signed by Blue Note. You know, Bruce gave me the money to make these demos because he wasn't sure if he wanted to sign me. So yes, I knew that that's what we were doing, but I wasn't trying to do something I thought Bruce would like because it was very much not, it wasn't really jazz at that point. It was kind of straying from the straight jazz genre that I had already been doing for a long time. It was it was like, okay, we have this opportunity to record this what we're doing with this band and see what it is. I wasn't that worried about it because I felt like if they didn't get it and this was what I was into doing, then it probably didn't make sense anyway for them to sign it. But one of my favorite albums since it came out, which it came out when I was in high school because I remember 11th grade being obsessed with it, um, was Cassandra Wilson, New Moon Daughter. Now that's on Blue Note Records. She does a monkey song. She does a Hank Williams song. She does a she does Skylark, you know, the standard. And she does a bunch of really great originals. She does a U2 song. And when I listen to that album, I don't feel like I thought jazz, you know, but at the same time, you know, she comes from that place and a lot of musicians on there do and it was but it was very different. There was no key instruments. There was all acoustic guitars. It was earthy and sort of beautiful and floaty. And I remember thinking about that album and thinking, well, I mean, Blue Note puts that out, so let's not be afraid to try what we're doing. You know, that was a huge influence on me, that album. So they make this demo album in a proper studio. It's basically like a proof of concept and it works, you know, but it's not enough for a finished album. You know, it's basically like, okay, we, we have something here. So now go make the actual album. And that's when Craig Street comes into the picture. And that's what the great treasure of this new box set to me is, is having the sessions she recorded with Craig Street, which haven't been available before. So after Nora meets with Craig and plays him the demo, and they have a couple of like, just, you know, conversations about what she's trying to do, he agrees to get involved, and they end up going to a place called Allaire Studios uh, in upstate New York, you know, this beautiful room in the Catskills, like up in the mountains. You know, it's also where David Bowie made the album Heathen uh, (laughs) right around this time. And, And so it's like this situation where the whole band and Craig brought in some heavy hitters like Bill Frizzell and Brian Blade on drums, and they all live there for, you know, I think like five days or a week 
Um, I mean, literally live there. They have yeah. like little cabins. It was like camp, right? Yeah, totally. So, <laughs> so you know, this it's this like magical experience where you're just surrounded by it. You're you know living and breathing the creation of this album, and you're having meals with your you know collaborators, and that I think suffuses the spirit of these sessions. We should hear some music from the Alaire sessions. Again, now available to us for the first time, wasn't released before. And pick a song that we should hear from those sessions. Well, Nate was talking about Bill Frizzell's guitar, Brian Blade's drums, and you really hear that synergy they achieve in the track Nightingale from the very first notes. And you know, Nora Jones herself wrote this song, which shows that she had that skill as a songwriter, even as a very young woman, and that completely sort of uncategorizable quality. I mean, this song really represents that to me. It could have been recorded by a singer-songwriter in 1971, you know, but it also... This is what makes her so contemporary in 2022. I could hear this right now topping the streaming services. It's just, it's timeless. Yeah. She's an old soul already, you know? (laughs) So Um, true. So after they recorded, you know, and all the recording, I think, just felt like this incredible dream. She then stayed for another week up there with Craig and the engineer, and they mixed what they were going to deliver to Blue Note in this big sort of almost church-like space, which audio people will tell you that's not not necessarily the best environment to mix an album. Um, <laughs> but Nora didn't know that at the time. right? <laughs> and so what they end up delivering is this heaping platter of recordings, you know, 19 tracks that they'd mm. cut up there. Oof. They had redone, I think, pretty much everything on the demo and they had added some other stuff. And so they delivered it and then they waited. And so whenever we finished these mixes, I just I didn't really understand what it was about it, but I thought maybe I just didn't sing very great on it. I didn't love the way I sounded on them. And there was a ton of, there was just like a lot of guitar. The guitars were all really loud. And, you know, with two guitar players at times, it was a little, it was just not balanced for what I, I wanted. And um, Bruce was given the 21 songs with these funky mixes. And after a week, I didn't even hear from him. And I had like a pit in my stomach. And he, my my manager at the time, Shell, called me and said that they rejected the record. <laughs> and I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I was like, what? I was kind of relieved because I also knew that it wasn't quite right. But I was also just scared that, like, I was going to lose the deal and it was over. It's crazy to think of the position she was in as such a young artist being stuck between those two things, right? Like, she doesn't want to lose this deal, but she wants to be true to who she is. You know, and where does she go from here and, and make both those things work together? 
And of course, it's a classic story of this era and previous eras in working with major labels. How many bands in the 90s had dealt with that leap to a major label? Great indie bands, you know, who then were forced to modify their sound and quote unquote sell out. So all of that had to be percolating through her head a little bit. It feels like such an old school way of making music, right, too? I mean, does it happen anymore where, you know, the executive's sitting with their cigar behind the desk and saying, that's not what we want, kid. You got to go back to, I mean, I'm completely imagining what this must well, be like, you know. It's funny because Bruce Lundvall was, was in some ways, he was, he was like a man out of time, you know? Like, he came out of that era and he still, you know, he still did wear three-piece suits when I would see him out at jazz clubs. There's a funny parallel here. Because I once interviewed him about Cassandra Wilson hmm. and her early experience. He went out to hear her and she was performing with um, Steve Coleman and M-Bass. And it was like this very like musically intricate layered funk and odd meters and all this stuff. And he basically told her, that's not going to work for you on this label. We, we don't want that. We want you. We want your voice out front. And so that's when he put her with Craig, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so... So here we have this executive who really is a fan, like he he really hears. And I think in this case, in Nora, I think he saw a diamond in the rough. And when you have a diamond, what do you want to do? You want to give it a proper setting, right? Yeah, yeah. well um, said. And to him, like this Allaire stuff, I'm, I'm sure he thought it was nice, but I think he just probably had an instinct. We could put this out, but it's not going to put her forward in the best possible light. We should hear more from the Allaire sessions. We heard Nightingale. What's another track? You know what I love? The title track of this album, you know, the way that we all know it is as a sort of gentle country waltz, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's not how they played it. The version that Craig produced, it's got a different sound. It's in a different time signature. And the whole vibe changes. Come away. Come away and I will write you a song. Come away with me on a bus. Come away where they can't tempt us with their trying to count it out and I can't tell if I'm doing triplets like one, two, three, one, two, three, or if it's a waltz yeah. or what's going it's, on. It, so it's it's in four, four, but it's got a triplet feel. Let's hear the final version that was released and that everybody knows. Come away with me on a bus. Come away where they can't stand us. With their lies And I want to walk with you On a cloudy day In fields where the yellow grass grows knee high So won't you try to come, come It's that jazz, not jazz question again Because the first vocal... She's connecting kind of with the history of cocktail jazz or something or noir jazz. and <laughs> this. But the version we know, it feels so conversational and natural. 
You know, mm-hmm. just like this person whispering in your ear. We need to take a a short break, but we'll come back and continue our conversation about the 20th anniversary edition of Nora Jones' Come Away With Me. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. One of the reasons we were all excited to talk about this record is because of the time it came out. And, you know, before this taping, we were completely geeking out at at the fact that this album really captures a moment in time that was really pivotal for the music industry and for Americana music. You know, that there was just sort of something in the air about Americana music that was happening at that time. You think of like what New West Records was doing. You know, it's coming on the heels of, oh, brother, where art thou? That whole Americana scene was unfolding and becoming massively popular. You know, there was a tour and they're selling out big venues for it. There was something that everyone wanted, it felt like, at the time that they heard in the sound of this music. Yeah, I I think the New West catalog and those artists, it's definitely something that is in conversation with the spirit of this album. And, you know, Anne and I have talked about this a little bit. Maybe it's because of the presence of Brian Blade, but um, (laughs) I also think about the turn of the century Bob Dylan album, Time Out of Mind, um, you know, which Daniel Lanois produced with this kind of like wonderful contrast between Dylan's parched rasp of a voice and then like this very reverberant, gluey and and sticky sound, you know? Yeah. And that's, you know, the Allaire sessions are in conversation with some of that, I think. Well, this is a ghost in the past of this record in a way. But when I think of Nora Jones in New York at the turn of the 21st century, for some reason, I also think about Jeff Buckley mm-hmm. in New York yeah. I guess about eight years before when he released his album, Grace. Completely different sound. I mean, you know, Nora never gets into the, like, Led up guitar. But that, first, the intimacy, the force of a personality that isn't performing for you, 
this is what was so important, I think, what was happening with singer-songwriters, kind of from the mid-90s into the moment where we get Nora. They are, in a way, very introspective and very individualistic. And just that sense, like, this is a unique moment that I'm sharing. Even though I've listened to this record a hundred million times, every time it feels unique. I think Jeff Buckley had that. I think Lucinda Williams, when she makes her masterpiece, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, which was in 1998, has that. And I think this record has that. Another artist or or band that I think of from that same time is Wilco. Yeah. um, For a number of Mm -hmm. reasons. Wilco, that exact same year, 2002, Wilco also made the record that they wanted to make, The Amazing Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It was also rejected by their label. Wow, there yeah. you go. And then the band takes the album and they put the whole thing up on the, on the and I'm using air quotes here, the internet <laughs> to stream for free. This is 2002. It was completely unheard of at the time. Yeah. And Yankee Hotel Foxtrot also ends up being the album that takes Wilco to the next level in terms of both artistry and popularity. Just a lot of really interesting and fascinating parallels um, mm-hmm. in terms of what was happening across the music industry at the time. But let's get back to Nora Jones's story after Blue Note rejected her first version of the album, Come Away With Me. Blue Note, they drop producer Craig Street and they send Nora Jones back into the studio with a different producer, a very, very famous producer named Arif Martin. In our circles, this is a man who needs no introduction, but oh, maybe we goodness. should introduce him here. <laughs> um, because when Bruce said, we're going to actually put you back in the studio, and this time, you know, we want to pair you up with Arif Martin, yeah. her initial, she had an initial response that was like intimidation because of who this guy was, but also like she recoiled a little bit because it's like, oh, you're going to, like she was being sent to the principal's office or oh, something. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, Let's say why why was Aretha Martin the principal? Well, this is because he was you know did the arrangements on Aretha Franklin's Respect, also on Dusty Springfield's Son of a Preacher Man, produced John Prine's first album Jive Talking by the Bee Gees, Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. I mean, it just it doesn't stop with this guy, and it was a, and I mean it was really a you know a bold choice although thinking about the other new york act that broke through around the same time as Nora Jones completely different the strokes when Gordon Raphael worked with the strokes it's almost the same thing as what happens when Arif Martin enters the picture and works with Nora it's like let this band be what it is mm-hmm. because there's something about this band that is complete magic that people know on the ground and we have to get that out even if it sounds like nothing else that's in the pop charts right now. We should hear some more music from the final record uh, that's been remastered. I know a, a lot of people know it well, but it's so good to hear again. We've talked about her some of her country roots. I'd like to play a bit of her version of the song Cold, Cold Heart. I've tried so hard, my dear show that you're my every dream Yet you're afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme A memory from your lonesome past keeps us so far apart Why can't I free your doubtful mind And melt your cold, cold heart 
I remember hearing this when the record was first out. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> She's doing cold, cold heart. I've never heard it this way before. Yeah, it's such a slinky, like, it's relaxed, but it's definitely got a forward pull. You know, this arrangement has always reminded me of Peggy Lee. Yeah. You know, and we should say this is one of the songs that does not exist in either of the previous recording sessions. Like Cold Cold Heart was an idea that arose in the final recording session that Arif Marden produced. Well, and the fact that she was covering Hank Williams helps me make my case about this record, which is that it really should be considered one of the cornerstones of what became known as Americana music. When we think about Americana, where it came from, we often think of, as you mentioned before, Robin, the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. We think mm. about Lucinda Williams. We think about Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings oh, making yeah. this very kind of revisionist, uh, reformist in a way, country-rooted music usually or folk revival-rooted music. But Nora and this album, this is what... Americana in 2022 is looking back to consciously or not, because as Americana itself faces the need to acknowledge people of color, acknowledge, you know, soul and R&B and jazz as part of what Americana is, we need to look at this record because this had it all. It's a template for so much that follows. One of the things that I think has removed this album from that discussion partly was out of its control, you know? It's not like this was created and pitched and presented as like a shiny product off the major label assembly line, but that's what happened to it. You know, Robin talked about what it was like the first time we heard it. I wonder if we can remember like the 4,092nd time we heard don't know why you know mm. standing in line at a starbucks exactly um, right. <laughs> you know i mean this album just was inescapable for quite some time and then it kind of like okay enough enough already <laughs> right but that's again that's out of her control it's out of the label's control it's just what happened but um i should i should shout out nora jones the liner note essayist <laughs> because she contributed some really beautiful notes to the package for this anniversary box. And she talks about a lot of what we've been discussing. And she also provides a really great sort of lucid timeline of it all. One thing she notes is that the final album, Come Away With Me, included a couple of tracks from the first demo sessions. So not her demo tape, but the first sessions that Blue Note sent her in for, including Don't Know Why. So the song that took over the world was from the earliest, her earliest session in a studio. They couldn't improve on that. And then three songs from the Allaire sessions, The Long Day Is Over, Feeling the Same Way, and Seven Years. Those are also on the finished album. So it ends up being this like, I mean, I don't think you would ever listen to this album and see the seams. It's very thoughtfully sequenced and produced, but it's got material from three different circumstances. It speaks to the idea that like nothing is wasted. Nate, it's interesting when I listen to your conversation with Nora when she talks about the recordings she made at Allaire with Craig Street. She sounds like, you know, she kind of feels bad for Craig that his recordings that she thought were really special ended up being rejected and maybe things would have turned out differently if they yeah. just had some more time. Definitely was never a failed experiment. I think it might have just tipped a little too far in one direction. And, and f having it tip back a little was all it needed. But Craig was never given the opportunity to help me do that. I think if Craig had been given 
the opportunity to help me make the rec, finish the record with the best of that. And maybe like another session with maybe less, uh, reverb or whatever, you know, um, you know, I, I think we would have made a great record, but I think, I think there were some politics at play behind the scenes that I don't really know much about. I think Bruce was getting a lot of pressure from the people up high. And I, I don't really know exactly what was going on behind the scenes. But knowing what I know now about making records, again, like it would have been so easy for me and Craig to go back in and remix some stuff and take the guitars down and, you know, add some EQ to the vocal. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a hard job. So given the opportunity to do that, it was kind of mind blowing. It was so fun. We got to finish it together. He remixed it with Tony Maserati and it was, it was healing. Cause I think it was, you know, for me, obviously it seemed like fate what happened and, Oh, this is how it was meant to be, you know, but for Craig, it was, it was a bummer to be, to have the record taken away from him. I'm, I'm sure of it. So it was kind of a weird situation. It is really good that Craig Street is now acknowledged in this process, I think. But I'd, I want to say, he continued to go on and make some amazing records with artists like Liz Wright and the Gypsy Kings and Madeline Peru and John Legend. So he wasn't just like crying in a corner for the rest of his career. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think, it, I think it is just one that got away. It definitely, know? yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. when you look at what an incredible world historical smash success this album was, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you think like I was a part of that, right? But his name does not come up in all the coverage and conversation around it. So yeah, I think there is a, a kind of restorative gesture here, and I, I love Nora's use of the word healing there because I think there was there was some unfinished business after all these years. We should go out on a, a song from the, the final album that came out, Come Away With Me. I'm feeling the call of a song called The Long Day Is Over. This was from the Allaire Sessions, but it did actually make the final album. Thanks so much, Nate Chinin and Powers. Thanks to you both. My pleasure. Delightful times with you all. And I'm Robin Hilton for NPR Music. It's All Songs Considered. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. 
For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.